the, the NFL stands for not for long. Second down and goal from just inside the two. Backs offset. Sharga and Armstead. Rollout. Walker. Still running out. Looks to the left. Wide open. Thompson touchdown. Colin Thompson with the touchdown. There was nobody within 20 yards. What of a catch off the bobble. Colin Thompson scoops it up. Lofting quarter. The end zone. It is caught for the touchdown. The first NFL touch for Colin Thompson is a score. All right, we're joined by a special guest today, someone I've been lucky enough to, to befriend, another person that I'm just fortunate enough to, to go to work with on a, a you know daily basis and, and get to know, and someone I look up to, he doesn't even really know it. Uh, 17 years calling Panthers football games on the radio. Mick Mixon, how you doing? I'm honored. I feel great. And ever since I heard you had a show, it was my stated goal to bridge the generation gaps, to go from uh, senior citizenry into the hip, tick-tocky, limb, limber as a rag, Colin Thompson podcast generation. So I don't know what I did to get on your show, but I hope uh, hope I don't mess your ratings up. You're, you're, you're only going to spike them. You know, if you if you work maybe 16 years, I don't know if you fit our profile, but 17 years, you put you into a next level of, you're at the upper echelon now. You're in the upper echelon. We were talking before. I, you know, I, I got bumped, you know, down to the practice squad this year about week 14 or 15 and then activated again. We played New Orleans later in the year, second to last game of the year. It's hard. I don't know the weeks anymore. With the, with the extra week and the bye week, it, it really jacks me up. But uh, now that we talk about it, I should have just, if they knew if I wasn't playing in the game, I should have just filled in and did some color commentary. Well, I'm disappointed in your commitment to the broadcast industry. I, I would have thought, and I didn't say anything because I wanted it to sort of be organic, but I wanted you to fake an injury so that you could get to the broadcast booth so that we could work a game or two together and tap into your vast knowledge of the human condition in general and the football condition in particular. But it'll have to be with somebody else because I'm retiring I'm talking to you now from uh, Morning Dove Farm in Alamance County, where my beautiful little shorty and me, we we bought some land, and I got a little dog running around here out back. That way is a tractor, John Deere 4720, 60 horsepower tractor, and I think I got a good play called from the press box if I can just execute it. And that play call is what, uh, you, you know, like take you on a ride on my big green tractor or is it like um you know this is what retirement looks like from behind the wheel of a john deere what's the play call play call is right trip zach 370 sale all one all one ready break <laughs> that sale like you're... let's go uh screen x y delay and try to get the ball to you cost the build 86 there you go. I scored many a play. I may have scored many a touchdowns, one to be exact, in college off that play. Uh, yeah, no, I know the play very well. Wide delay. For me to get open, I have to do what I what I do and block, and then they leave me and go guard someone else, and then I'm wide open. And then hopefully I'm close, I'm close enough to the end zone, like happened against Tampa last year, where I just catch it and fall into the end zone because I'm not running away from anybody. Was that, was that a wide delay or was that a wide choice? No, definitely not a wide choice. That's like the Witten route. Um, and the routes that like Christian kind of runs out of the backfield and all those, you know, which we threw a ton of this year, that, that, that little option 
where you're just trying to get the back one-on-one with, the, with a linebacker, a lesser athlete, a bigger guy. But no, that's like some sort of wide delay. People call it a bunch of different things. Wide block, wide delay. Um, you know, so yeah, it was good. Maybe we got to enter. Maybe we can get the call. Your call of my touchdown. We'll pop it on during the show. Oh, that'd be phenomenal. Hope we did it justice. The play call here, Colin, at the uh, at the farm is a lot of grandkids soccer games, a lot of piping some ditches, a uh, lot of uh, wreaking havoc on some vegetation. I got me a little brush hog. I'm desirous of a finish mower or maybe a badassic zero turn. I just love, I love, I know I don't look like it. I probably look more like an accountant than I do any kind of somebody that could spin a wrench or move some dirt around. But I've always loved uh, getting my hands a little dirty. Maybe it's because on the radio, you know this from being on air, on the radio you do a game and you hope you did a good job, but your comments just sort of disappear out into the universe. But if I come in from, from bush hogging this field out back, I can look out there and tell my wife, see that? I striped that field. Now what? You synced it. <laughs> and it just makes me feel good. <laughs> you get into the psych part of it. It's, a, it's an interesting point. The nice thing is now more than ever in the last, you know, you've been doing it 17 years, but in the last at least five, 10 years, your words don't disappear, right? They're posted back on social media for big plays. So that's an enjoying, you know, that's a self-fulfilling thing. Like, hey, listen, I, I, I think personally, I used to get upset when they would cut highlights when I was at Temple of the national broadcast for, of, of our games, you know, for the show for recruiting or whatever it may be. And they'd use the TV guys. I'm like, do you understand? We have Harry Donahue who's in the Temple Football Hall of Fame. He did KYW uh, in Philadelphia. He's a legend in Philadelphia, and I got to work with him and, and learn from him for three seasons. He was our play-by-play guy. He did Temple basketball as well. And they're cutting some guy into who's calling the game on ESPNU. And I'm hey, sure, they're, sure they're great. But you're like, what are you doing? I can't stand that. NFL Films is on this. I mean, they were on this before your parents were born. That The radio calls, and I'm not saying our radio calls. I, I'm I'm just saying that in general, those people like you're talking about and then NFL teams have them, colleges have them. Radio calls can be magical, descriptive, colorful. So to go with some some Biff Burns sportlight spotlight dude that just showed up on Thursday, maybe met with the coaches Friday or Saturday doing the game on Saturday, then he's off to Iowa, Iowa State or a basketball game or someplace next week doesn't do the um, the game being broadcast justice as I see it. Did you get right into radio? Were you drawn to radio? Or that's just where, you know, you would you wanted to do anything and it just kind of, you know, how did it work out? Did you fall into it or did you select it? Oh, you're kind of ask. I'll keep it short. I, I was a little Mickey Mixon growing up in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. This will shock you, but I did not blossom into the alpha male you see before you now until very late in life, too late to be much good to any coach, any team, any high school. So when I was a little kid, Colin, I was one of these left-handed, buck-toothed, nearsighted, smart aleck, procrastinating little kids that would not shut up. I kept a running out loud dialogue of the play-by-play of my entire life, whether it was shooting baskets under the street light my hometown, whether it was playing golf or tennis or whatever with my buddies, throwing the Frisbee, 
uh, didn't matter. I, I, I just kept this, I had this play by play call in my mind and all I really ever wanted to be was a sports broadcaster. I've loved athletics. I, I love how a press pass allows you to be close enough to a team and to men like yourself. You guys are the true warrior Kings, the sacrifices that you guys make to play this Spartan violent nuanced game of forward progress. That's so much a part of not just, what we do, especially in the South, but who we are, you know, you guys are the real stars. So I've always gravitated towards broadcasters that are good storytellers, that have a command of the nomenclature, the syntax of the game, but that don't care really who in the booth makes the good point, so long as a good point is made. They don't have a hokey self-aggrandizing signature call. That works fine for Michael Buffer. Let's get ready to rumble. But I think it defecates all over the game if you're bringing some dopey phrase that, you know, the hay's in the barn or uh, there's your dagger or fade to black or there's orange in the end zone or paint this one purple. There's a million of them. Those work fine for some guys, but I've just always believed that it sends a wrong message that people, because people aren't tuning in to hear your call, they're tuning in to hear the game. And if games can be broadcast with a sense of humility, with a sense of humor, to try to create a meeting place where people feel as though they're comfortable, they're, they're warmed by the dialogue. They feel like the broadcasters are listening to one another, not just one guy talks, then another guy says, you're absolutely right, Colin, and now back, now, now let me talk. That, that radio can, can, can fulfill its, its destiny for being a, a magical medium, even in this era of video, TikTok, ESPN, et cetera. Awesome points. And you and I have talked about this before in person. I, I, again, I'm sitting here thinking, man, we should have found a way to make that work, honestly, of me doing just a little bit of sideline color commentary. I probably have to get up in the booth because the players will be looking at me and laughing at me. So I'd have to hide up in the booth with you and, and enjoy that. You've worked with some great guys over the years, um, former Panthers, former NFL stars, players, uh, who are some of your favorite guys you've worked with in the booth or on the field? Jay Christopher DeLone, number 17, Hall of Honor inductee, 2019. I wish you could have met – I'm sure you've met him, Colin, but I wish you could have played with him if you'd have been born a little later or Jake a little sooner. He, he had that thing and still has it that if you want to get a mud hole stomped in you, find one of his offensive linemen and say something bad about Jake DeLone. Guys didn't want to let him down. Uh, Thomas Davis, unbelievable, just an unbelievable guy. I spoke at an event once, and Thomas Davis was there to get an award. So he gets an award at 630 at this country club in Charlotte during the summer several years ago. He could have bounced. Most guys would have. Hour and a half later, after dinner, dessert, I get introduced. I give my speech. They wanted me to do a Q&A. This guy in the back of the room, all drunk up, he gets up there, and he wants to ask me a question, fastball right at my chin. We had a D lineman back then named Greg Hardy who'd been arrested, charged with felony possession of firearms and pushing his – he's alleged to have pushed his girlfriend onto a bed with AK-47s and all this stuff. Not pretty, but – it was in the news. This guy says, Mick, I got a question. I want to know what effect 
you think the Greg Hardy situation is going to have on our team this year. So before I can answer, I see this stirring at a table down to my left. We're up on this podium, this riser, and 6'3", 250 pounds of NFL linebacker stands up, reaches up for the microphone. So I unclip it from the podium and hand it down to Thomas. He's still there. He hadn't gone home. He could have been in his pajamas with, his, with Kelly and with some kids. He points his finger at this drunked up old boy and says, let me tell you something. I talked to Greg Hardy just today. Now the room gets so quiet. You could, I mean, you could hear yourself breathe. Thomas Davis says that he talked to Greg Hardy and he told him that when you put on a Panther jersey, you're representing something bigger than yourself. You're representing Luke, Cam, Coach Rivera, all the great players that came before you, all that will come after you. And you've got to hold yourself to a higher standard. He said, all we know is what he's been accused of, but I think he got the message that I communicated. In that moment, and I'm going to try not to start crying when I, when I finish this story. In that moment, Colin, I had this feeling, this is as friggin' close as a six-foot-tall, 158-pound, 50 or 60-year-old, 58-year-old male, which was what I was at the time. This is, as this is as close as somebody like me could feel and come to being a teammate of Thomas Davis. This must be what it feels like to have somebody like Thomas Davis, quote unquote, have your back. And when he, when I hear phrases come out of locker room, like hold yourself accountable, hold each other accountable, next man up, all that, it meant something to me that night. And, and so Thomas Davis will forever be one of my favorite all-time guys, much less Panther players. I won't tell you stories like that about everyone, but Jordan Gross is pure class in every way. He adds to the broadcast. I used to love working with Eugene Robinson, a former safety, had all this effervescence and saliva, and I got shirts that the buttons popped off of because he's grabbing me going, Mick, it was holding, it was holding. And I don't think I've met a bad guy, really. You know, some, they're like, you're, you guys are like my children. And I love you all, but I, I don't think I've ever met one that that I wouldn't want to come over to my house and eat dinner with my wife and me. An unbelievable story about Thomas Davis. And, you know, I, I have there's there's always these moments in some of these interviews that you've been a part of that, you know, you never prepare for, just like in football games. And you try to keep your cool and you're calm and you're ready for the next question. But I want to just be like, this is exactly why I like to do this, too, and bring this, have this for him. We had Brian Dickinson on who climbed Mount Everest and then climbed back down blind, blind descent and had no oxygen on the way down. And like, he, I'm like, hey, Brian, this is unprofessional here, but I don't even know what to say to you right now. And he's like, I was like, maybe we should edit this out. I'm like, no, keep it. This is what the best part about this job is. And to answer your question, but you already answered it yourself. It is. That's what it's all about. Like, yes, there's the feeling of football and success on the field. And that's really cool. And that's success and failure because they end up being the same feeling because you have to ground yourself from both and bring yourself up from the, from the depths and then bring yourself down from the highs and live in the middle. But off the field, that's all we want. At least that's all I want. And some of the teammates, most of the teammates, is that sort of protection, that sort of I could be in a vulnerable state and I got someone to have my back and the connectability. That's the most beautiful thing about our sport because it's such a gladiator thing, like you said. It is 100% injury rate, 100% surgery rate 
for the most part. Uh, you're going to get something. And then to come off the field and there's emotional attachments. And that's why I struggle with so many people who are like, well, what are these players like you play with? I said, well, where do I start? I mean, I have so many amazing friends, so many amazing people. My kids are so much better off. I don't have any kids yet, but are so much better off because I've been able to do this sport and be around people like this. Like, and they weren't like people I grew up with. You know, I grew up in a, a, a nice neighborhood outside of Philadelphia, an hour outside of the city. And I had everything I ever wanted and more. And 90% of the players I play with, 99% of the players I play with had nothing like that. So now my kids get to learn and be around that. So I digress. There's so many beautiful things that this game gives. Um, but what is the best gift it's given to you? And would assume the relationships. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And just to your earlier point, Colin, I, I, um, I, books are written, movies are made, seminars are held about what it's like to be a woman. I got no clue about that because all I've ever been or wanted to be is a man, but it's not all that easy being a man at times either. Men don't, we're not taught or coached how to, how to, to, to communicate. We're, we're, the art of male closeness is, a, I'm not even sure it's a lost art because I don't think it's one that has ever really existed. We're taught to don't show your feelings. Don't let anybody see any vulnerabilities. So as a result, if you're not careful, you get to a certain age, a certain station in your life, and you've got no clue how to tell a coach, a teacher, a, uh, a friend, uh, thank you for the faith and trust you placed in me. Thank you for that thing you said or that call you made or that extra beverage that you sat for when you were probably ready to go home. And what I see and hear so much in NFL locker rooms, you were telling me uh, about PJ Walker one day after practice and had no idea that some of the things that you knew and saw about PJ because y'all had been thrown together, your friends were not, sorry, smaller name on the other line, David Tepper, I'll call him back, were revealed to you through a friendship formed through the undeniable fact that in a huddle, the differences between us melt away. We're all more alike than we are dissimilar. We just want a shot at it, you know, want to be happy, want to get a first down, want to block my man, want to do my assignment. And then if at the end of the day, somebody comes and says, you brought the fight today, Colin, I appreciate that. We saw it. We noticed it. And keep swinging your sword because it'll pay dividends for you moving forward. So, And PJ is exactly the example that I think of PJ's from Elizabeth, New Jersey, right? He is from a, a, an area, unlike mine where I grew up in. Um, and he has become a great friend of mine. He is someone that I work with. Sure. But our working relationship is so strong that it's just, it's just tremendous. We've been, we've been together now for seven years, probably eight years. You know, that's awesome to work in our profession like that. So, you know, I, I, I love the man and, and the things he's done for me and he doesn't even really do them for me. And he feels the same way. I don't do them for him, but I do it for the overall success and the overall achievement. And talking about people I run through a wall for like Jake Delone, it's PJ Walker. We were talking before the Arizona game. I said, Mick, I think we're going to beat him this weekend. And we're walking down the tunnel and I'm like, PJ Walker's starting quarterback. Like that's someone I have a lot of firm and believe in. He went 22 of 29 
that was against Cam's first game, and and he had a great game. PJ looked fantastic, very cool, calm, and collected against one of the NFL's best defenses, in my opinion, in Arizona. So, no, it's an unbelievable thing this game is. It really is. And I've been so fortunate. So I was talking about Tampa this weekend. And we'll talk about what the, what the game's given to you, but really the answer to relationships. So we don't even really have to get into it. But, and we'll just talk about it. But Tampa, like I've been in Tampa in so many different forms in that stadium. Let's go back. So I played a college football game there. I called a college, I called a college football game there. I've tailgated and partied and watched a college football game there. I played my first NFL game there. Uh, Carolina Panthers, week two, 2020 season. First play, motioned across, and Christian McCaffrey snuck in behind me from one yard deep right between my legs, put my hands up, touchdown. Before that, I played an XFL game in that stadium in Tampa. I went to an NFL game there when I was in college, Nick Foles, Andy Reid's last game as a, a head coach of the Eagles. So got a lot of experience at Raymond James Stadium. And, uh, you know, it's funny. The game's given me a lot of opportunities and a lot of different things, a lot of connections, a lot of great stories. But some of my fondest memories of this game are doing radio and traveling with the team. Did you travel with the team back in the day? 100%. Before you got here, I mean, this is – I just finished my 17th and last year with the Panthers. And for every year prior to COVID, we were on the team charter. And the answer to your, your earlier question, relationships, yes. But the thing that, that you said – so the way you phrased it was, what has the game given me? Uh, a press pass, my job has not only – uh, allowed me to, it has forced me to, and I'm curious minded by nature anyway, but a press pass has given me the Willy Wonka golden ticket to go up to people who don't look like I do, who may not have grown up in the same kind of town as me, city as me, state as me, who may have a different worldview than me. The O-lineman from Galveston, Texas that can rope them and brand them, the, the corner from uh, South Bayonne, New Jersey, uh, the, the California kid who saunters in to play quarterback, the, the guy from South Florida that, that's, uh, that's a linebacker, played at the U, tatted up, not tatted up, believer, non-offense, defense, special teams. That, that, that my, a big part of my job has been to sit down next to people like I've described and say, Tell me what makes you happy, what makes you sad, what makes you fearful, what motivates you. Are you a parent? Are you married? How did you propose to your wife? Did you talk to her dad first? What was the title of the last song you sang out loud? And a hundred other questions. And then listen to the answers and sift through them and deal that information out, hopefully in a classy, judicious, timely way on our radio broadcast to add a little bit of texture, some fabric, some, some flesh, some, uh, some tactile kind of sensory experiences to the bones of a broadcast. That's been one of my greatest joys. That's unbelievable. That's fantastic stuff. And that's what probably COVID has robbed us of. Now I get to see you. I didn't see you last year. Were you there last year at all? Oh, yeah. 
Okay. But I was quarantined. I mean, I had to be on the bank to watch practice. You couldn't walk down in the field like you did this year, post-practice. Right. I had to do Zoom interviews last year. And you were in mask. You weren't a mask, probably. Yeah. Yeah. So so you would have seen, so in a normal year, and, and I'm big on, I'm big on, I don't try to be boys with you guys. You have your life. I have mine. I, 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 I love you guys. I respect you, but I try to be respectful of your time. So I have my seat on the team plane. Occasionally, if I'm going to the bathroom and JJ Jensen, uh, Ryan Khalil. Uh, you could call it JJ now. You could call it JJ, most member of this podcast, a family member of the podcast. You may that you may be, you know, landing, standing up by the bathroom because you're going to be oh. about an hour with JJ. Oh, five hour flight back from Seattle in a headwind. Four you're just hoping, hours. You're hoping you see JJ because then you can kill some time. And JJ knows finance. So JJ knows risk tolerance. He knows, should you buy that? Does get a dealer's offering me 0% for 60 months? Do I, you know, do I, do I take that? Do I go ahead and pay it off? Do I, do I do this home equity loan? You know, JJ knows all the 401k. Do I take social security? Do I wait till I'm 70 or do I take it? (laughs) JJ literally did a whole rookie symposium. Now I disagree with some of his stuff finance wise. I'm not saying it was wrong, but I would do it maybe a little bit differently, but he did a whole symposium, for lack of a better term, to the rookies. I mean, he, he would have, he could have made ten grand in the appearance fee. And he, should, he don't need it, probably. I don't want to speak about a man's finances, but he'll be okay. He's been doing it just as long as you have, as a long snapper. Uh, and, like, he just did a whole thing for the rookies. How much you need to invest before you, you're this? How much is that? All these different things. Paying off debt, like. Just boom, 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 boom. Like the 10 different things off the top of his head. I was like, this guy, who is this guy? Because they brought us up to speak to the rookies. It was it was four or five different players that all come from different backgrounds, all different successes. It was like me, Julian Stanford. Uh, he played, you know, I, people on here listening know my story. And then you got Julian Stanford who played 12 years in the league, 10 years in the league, a special team stud for us. A.J. Boye went from undrafted to the highest paid corner in the NFL history at one point in time. JJ, a long snapper, uh, just tremendous. I mean, it was a great. I was, and that's a credit to our our staff at Carolina to speak to the rookies. But uh, yeah, I mean, JJ was unbelievable. Every time JJ Jensen opens his mouth, it's a symposium. It is. We were we were debating: is there one? Is there is there whole truth? Is truth real? One day last year, I was like, oh. Like an hour, like I have to shower and get out of here. It is six o'clock at night. He's tremendous. We could do a whole podcast on JJ and and yeah. he's he's tremendous. The relationship. So that's what I really, really wish we were able to do. Like I would be back in the back of that plane with you on the flight home, like talking about the game, the call and whatever. I think that's the one thing I think COVID has robbed the most. Yeah. I know. And it was harder for me to do my job. It took me, I mean, I knew Justin Burris had was in grad school at NC State, but it took me four months to find out what he was studying. I mean, I had to get, I had to get Maria to, to, to go down, I had to remind her to ask her if she would go down there, somebody with access, can you ask him? And then, oh man, it was just. And why know. does that matter for people listening? Because we're in North Carolina. 
we got people that graduated from NC State. We have NC State fans. You could say, hey, you know, Jay, Justin Burris, a great pass breakup there. You know, he's a graduate. He's in these kinesiology, whatever it is. That stuff matters. That's awesome. Well, plus, to the fans, you guys look like colorful bumper cars down there on the field colliding into one another. And But if we can just – and I don't make a big deal out of it, but if the game stops long enough, to allow me, if I have the knowledge, if let's just say you score a touchdown or and we don't want you to get hurt, but sometimes it helps me if you get just shaken up a little bit because then I have the opportunity to say, Colin Thompson's story is like a damn Faulkner novel. I mean, got engaged over the summer, girlfriend went through all this with him, appendicitis, was going to make the Giants, has a pen. And if I can just tell a little bit of your story, and you have an amazing story. Not everybody has your story, but everybody has a story. Yep. And I love just just trying to just foretell some of those things, or maybe even tell them a little bit. Because I think I think I think you guys have earned that. I mean, you your your people, you know, you're you're a tight end, you're number eighty six, and all that. But you got hopes and dreams and fears and aspirations, and and you contribute to the team. All of you do in ways that go beyond your stats on the field. I hate to bring it up, but uh, I can't help but read it when I was reading up on you and a few things and, and, and what happened with your family and, and when you were, you know, a boy and your parents and, you know, obviously something you're, I don't want to say comfortable talking about, but you've talked about because it's in several articles that, about your retirement and that's your parents passing away in a car, in a, excuse me, in a plane crash. Um, how has that, you know, story, you know, shaped you, your life? the way you, you have family values, all those different things. Because obviously it's extremely traumatic, but you're an extremely successful person, family, grandkids, all these different things. Yeah, good question, Colin. Thank you, Maya. For those who don't know, and I haven't talked about it a lot, everybody's got a story to tell, and I don't want any empathy or sympathy for what my family and I went through. But uh, my mom and dad passed away on a United Airlines flight, a DC-10 United Flight 232 which in July of 1989 crashed and broke apart in a cornfield in Sioux City, Iowa, trying to make an emergency landing when the plane was disabled in mid-flight because the number two engine, the engine in the tail of the plane, broke apart and fell off. So the pilot could still fly, but he couldn't steer. So he had to alternately shut down engine number one, fly this way, kind of crab walk while losing altitude, plane had no hydraulics so he was just trying to do the best he could to land it and almost did and my parents died on that flight I think I might have said my dad was 57 my mom was 54 I was 30 and prior to my parents dying I was not in the club I wasn't in the frat what is the frat it's has someone have you outlived someone that you really 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 cared about and prior to age 30, uh, I wasn't in the club. So I was a little bit of a train wreck. I was, the, I was liable to say about anything. One of the things that happened to me, Colin, when my parents died is that things meant different things. So all of a sudden, as if somebody threw a switch, a, a siren, an ambulance, a fire truck, or a collection of words. I might have been that guy. Those things meant different things to me all of a sudden. I might have been that guy previously that said, oh, man, I almost had a heart attack when I, I almost died when that receiver caught that pass. So it affected my word choices. 
prior to my parents dying, I wasn't much of a hugger. I wasn't a, uh, my, cause my dad wasn't, my mom was, my mom grew up in Pennsylvania, New York. My dad was a Southerner. You think it'd be the other way around, but my dad was parented. Don't talk, don't speak, don't do anything unless you're spoken to and asked to. But when my parents died, I became not immediately, but over the next couple of years, I became someone you know, we were talking earlier about about male closeness and just closeness in general. I became somebody who wanted to try to reach out to the people who helped me in my life, to people that I was even people that I didn't know well, just to say I would come up to people and I said that was what you did there was good. That made an impression on me. Uh, if I can help you in any way, let me know. I tried to, I became more communicative and I became more of a hugger. And I would just want to just hug people that I cared about. And, you know, I could talk for your whole show. I won't, I'll stop now. But, you know, that everybody talks about the brevity of life and Hallmark cards and that kind of thing. But TV stations came to my house the night that we learned that they hadn't survived the crash. And I told all the TV stations, I said, if you're here to, to photograph, to sh show a house full of sad people, they're right, they're right behind me in that house right there. But if you just do that, you've missed the point. The point of my parents dying is that they died with no secrets. We knew, it took a while, but we knew they loved us, my sister and me, and, and they knew that we loved them. Not every family can say that. So when this newscast is over, find somebody that you're sideways with. Find somebody you need to say thanks to. Find somebody you need to say I'm sorry to and close the loop. It's not that hard and it gets easier over time. And if you'll do that, you'll help my sister and me ensure that my parents did not die for no reason. That's the same message everyone listening to this podcast too, right? I mean, that's the end of the day. Everyone, I shouldn't say everybody, but a lot of people that go through traumatic things, death, in particular, to someone near and dear they love, it's always hug the person, you know, next to you and be closer and be more communicative. And it's an, it's an unbelievable point you bring up about men and, and talking through things. And I think that's the one unique thing about football too, Mick, is because of the vulnerability we have to go through physically and how at any moment of time your career could be over, your life could be over, sadly. I mean, and that's extreme, but that's real. You could be a paraplegic. I mean, that's real stuff in this game yeah. um, that, you know, players think about briefly and get rid of their head because you don't want to think about that. But the nice thing about football is we have time together, not guaranteed. But if you're lucky enough to stick together for long periods of time, you get to know people like a Stefan Sullivan who got in our tight end room right away and, and was just sitting back and, was reading the room and now he's one of the most talkative and I know a ton about Sully and, and that's the most beautiful part of this game it's comfortability and saying thank you and these things go on because those messages are harped daily from good coaches which I believe coach rule is about the little things matter and showing affection and being a great dad and a great person um, and it's always a tough segue the segue from from your thoughts there, and I appreciate you sharing that. Really do. I know our listeners do too. It's tremendous. I want to transition to some of the players that you've been able to call games from, for, for lack of a better term. Some unbelievable players have come through Carolina, 
the pinnacle of success of the franchise was losing to the Super Bowl a few years ago, I would assume. Um, <clears throat> the first Super Bowl that they were in, I was the first game I ever watched with Jake DeLone. That was the first NFL game I remember watching. Patriots, Carolina. My mom says, you can watch the game. My dad was um, on a trip watching the game, I think with Buddy somewhere or at the game. I forget where he was, but my mom's like, all right, you can watch the game. So, I, you know, my mom and I do have special bonds together with football as well. She's a big Steelers fan. Obviously Panthers fan, but she's a big Steelers fan. I digress. Some of the greatest players you've been able to coach, you know, not, I'm not looking for you to ring off, you know, some of the, you know, who they are and all these different names, but a good player, a great player that everybody knows about or a couple that you've been able to really establish a personal relationship with. I'm a fan of Julius Peppers. He did not trust people. Uh, outstanding athletic talent, musical talent. Big as a house. Talent. Causes you to, yeah, no doubt. Causes society to treat you differently. If you're a world-class cello player, chess player, sprinter, long jumper, singer, dancer, quarterback, then you're called out and different rules apply to you. Uh, different opportunities come your way. Different things are expected of you. This affected Julius Peppers, and he decided uh, he was going to reel in and trust his agent, a guy named Carl Carey, and anybody else. Hello, Julius. Are you in there? Julius had a hard time getting in. But for some reason, um, Julius took a liking enough to me at UNC. Maybe he was amused by some of my questions. I can't take any credit for it, but I did see, and it was easy to see, that Julius was very layered. He was smart. He was intelligent. He was new. He was uh, he knew he knew things. He he was well read. Julius Peppers, that kind of guy that might be singing a hip hop song one minute, a Christian hymn another minute, a country song another minute, pop forty top forty song another minute, and any of those songs he knew the lyrics and he knew what the song meant, and he might know who wrote the song. Love that about Julius. So I went to him early on and said, don't give me any of this with these one word answer bull crap because I'm on to you because I know you're packing and I want the full Julius Peppers. And he would smile and say, all right, Nick, all right. So some of my favorite interviews were interviews with Julius Peppers when other reporters that he didn't trust weren't able to get him to open up. And then on occasion, he would open up and talk to, to me about his life and his his relationships and and football as well. So Julius would be one. Greg Olson, as you know, rivals J.J. Jansen. Greg Olson, like J.J., could talk the horns off of Billy Goat. And I sit in his locker now, and J.J. made a comment the one day. He said, man, the guys that sit in this locker just love to talk a lot. I was like, ah, oh, <laughs> screw you. Olson, I mean, used up leaders of the Earth's oxygen. And never change subjects. He could talk for hours and still you come back, you walk by his locker, walk by him on the plane, come back two hours later, and he's still on the same subject. And one time at New England, we played a preseason game at New England a couple of years ago. And I don't plan it this way because, as I said, I don't try to be chummy with, with you guys. Uh, I'm open to it, but I don't try to, uh, to, to in artificially inseminate any kind of relationships like that. But I'm at this table. It ends up being McCaffrey sits down with me. Uh, Chris Hogan, the receiver we had. Uh, Olson, 
and we start talking about the return game. And in these settings, I speak very little because I realize this is my chance to learn. You know, the game opens up to me now and I get to learn from people who know so much about it and whose knowledge is so deep. We start talking about the return game. And Olson starts talking about when Devin Hester played in Chicago with him. I got chills right now. Just I can't imitate Greg, but the way he just so Olson commands our whole table and he's looking all of us in the eye. And he says, when Devin Hester went back to receive a punt, when the other team kicked off to Devin Hester, it changed our whole sideline. And in fact, it changed the guys on the punt return and kickoff return team because they knew that their play was elevated. Because they knew this isn't just a, a guy back here. If I do my job just, you know, Matt Rule says 1% better. If I do my job just a tiny bit better, if I can hold my block a little longer, Greg starts talking about how everybody's up on the sideline. So they're, they, they're going up, they get up to watch Devin Hester. So just the, the psychology of how an athlete like that could affect the sideline, how he could affect the other 10 on the field with him, just in that, that crucible of that return on a cold day at Soldier Field in Chicago. And who knows what the score might have been. I love that. I love – that. to me, that's a master class in football, team dynamics, uh, and not the only example like that from, from Greg Olson. Uh, Steve Smith, the great number 89, as combative – if Steve Smith were an animal, he would be some kind of pit viper. And you might walk by Steve Smith. You might walk over the top of him 10 different times and you may not get envenomated. But any misstep could cause you to lose an extremity and experience incredible discomfort and pain. Every drill was personal to Smitty. Every game was personal. So I'll tell you this real fast, very quickly. It's a podcast. You can bring it, man. It's a podcast. Well, I don't know. I won't take up that much time. Uh, probably 2007, I'm emceeing a sponsor event in Bank of America Stadium with AT&T. AT&T's got 125 people, their families. It's about mid-December, so it's getting near Christmas, and Steve Smith is the keynote speaker. So you got your humble correspondent, Forrest Orion, Vixen third, And the Pit Viper. And – Right. And this puff adder wide receiver, Steve Smith, now comes time for the Q&A. After a few questions, this little peppermint patty, little freckle face, auburn haired, little ponytail girl, eight years old, raises her hand. Steve points at her. She says, Mr. Smith, I have a question. Do you believe in Santa Claus? <laughs> Steve looks at her mother, who looked like she was kind of a woodstock, you know, no makeup, kind of naturally pretty, just earthy, kind of a flower child, kind of mom, and very laid back. The mom, Steve looked at her and said, do you want me to play it straight or you want me to tell it like it is? She said, whatever you think. <laughs> so Smitty looks back at the girl and says, what's your name? She says, well, my name's Abigail, but all my friends call me Abby. Steve says, well, Abby, let me put it to you like this. I grew up in South Central Los Angeles, and if a fat white guy with a red coat and a white beard had come down the chimney at my house, somebody would have probably put a cap in his ass. 
I look at my watch and I go, well, that's about all the time we have. Steve, thank you. Abby, thank you. Go AT&T and go Panthers. What were the reaction by the people around? I don't remember, to be honest with you, because I was so shocked, mortified, apoplectic, catatonic. So now fast forward to this summer, me, Steve Smith, and Taylor Zarza are in a Uber. No, we're in a rental car going to practice from the hotel way up north where y'all practiced at Indy in the preseason. I said, Steve, do you remember the time? So I tell Steve Smith this. It's one reason I can tell you the story now, because I've told He's heard me tell it. He laughed and he turned back. He was in the front seat. I was in the back seat. He turned back to me and he pointed at me and he said, but I always ask. I always ask the mom. And she said that I could take my best shot. And I did. <laughs> so what are the lessons we're learning from this podcast today with Mick? Because this is, let's be honest, folks. This has now become... This is just a, this is the first of, of many times that it, we'd be humbled to have you back. But the lessons we learned today are honesty is key from Steve Smith. Mick, let everybody communicate how you feel about someone. And if it's bad, fix it. If it's good, tell them thank you when we love them. Let's see what else have we learned on this podcast today. Uh, JJ Jansen, he's a talker. Greg Olson's a talker. We knew that already. A lot of good things in this podcast today. And you are ready to just – now, what's the plan? Like, what's the grand scheme at the farm there? Like, are we building anything? Are we adding anything? Are we digging ponds up? 60 acres, I read. So, lots of room, Coach. What's the plan? Well, uh, I'm married to this beautiful, pretty little thing, uh, Dawn Elizabeth Thomas Mixon. And she has sacrificed, not like calling NFL games is going to Afghanistan, fighting in a war, root out the terrorists, put out fires, arrest criminals, try cases, take out somebody's pancreas. <laughs> Nothing like that. Uh, but it, it is, training camp is labor intensive. I've stayed in the dorm down there the whole time. Uh, NFL games aren't always in your city. Sometimes they're in other cities. You got to travel. So Dawn has sacrificed a lot to be married to me. Hopefully she's enjoyed it and gained a few good memories as well. But uh, I want to try to pay her back some for the sacrifices she's made in the 10 and a half years we've been married. I want to, I've told people before, Colin, that broadcasting a game for me comes about as close to the feeling that I imagine you might feel to play in the game as anything I could get close to. For someone who's done both, there's adrenaline in both. There's yeah. a bright lights moment in both, for sure. That is very similar. Yeah, you know, you prepare. Are you ready? Like you said earlier, things happen in on broadcast. Things happen in games that you're you can't script and you're not ready for. So can you ad lib, hang in there? And when the national anthem's played, when there's the flyover, when there's the coin toss, when the gladiators enter the arena, there I, there's nothing like it. It is a drug. It is a high, and I have been addicted to it ever since I was a young broadcaster. So the plan is to replace that high with some other highs, such as the feeling of my wife's hand in mine as we walk around our little pond out back and watch the sunset, like the feeling of my grandkids, and I am their favorite person in the world, running into my arms lickety split, 
like the feeling of a freshly cut field, uh, a burn pile that was tall, now it's burning on down. And those highs are the highs I'm looking forward to. And uh, I've, I've said this before, but Tennyson wrote the uh, last couple of lines of a Tennyson poem, and he referred to the last of life for which the first was made. I think it was actually a letter to his girlfriend or wife, grow old with me, the best is yet to be, the last of life for which the first was made. And I think about that a lot. I'm 63. Nobody knows how long they're going to live. That's the X in the equation. But I want to make sure that I do the best job I can of, of living a, a full and complete life if I'm able to. And I've been so fortunate. I've had the friendships, the laughs, the memories, the fun of any 10 average dudes added together. And um, I'm just ready. I'm ready to not, I'm ready to pass the Panther chair along to some other man or woman and let them experience what a joyous Noel it is. And then I'm ready to just tinker in my shop and have some fun living life. I love it. I love it. Well, we look forward to having you back on if, if you would grace us with your presence again, because this was so much fun. We literally could go for four or five hours, Joe Rogan style here. <laughs> we don't have four or five hours and we will do it in person again one day for sure. I think we, we could do a couple episodes. We still didn't talk about UNC. We still didn't talk about some of your favorite calls as a Panther uh, uh, announcer. We still didn't talk about plenty of other personalities. So we get you well, back on at some point. A building, a basic building block of human interaction is that scarcity breeds momentum. And so we would rather leave them hopefully wanting a little more. Let's get back together. But this is our psychological contract, young man. And I'm not bigger than you, but I'm older than you. So I can lord over you in this way. Next time that I'm on with you, we at least have to take a little bit of time and let me ask you some questions. I have a lot of questions about the locker room. I have a lot of questions about this coaching staff. I have a lot of questions about all the noise, all the din that's out here. I'm not on social media, but I know it's pretty bloody out there. Well, let's ask a couple now. We got we can do another 10 minutes. Ask what do you got? What do you what do you got? What do you predict as uh, where can Matt Rule, where can Matthew Kenneth Rule take this Carolina Panther football team? And do you see any reasons? Part two of the question is do you see any reasons why a quote unquote college head coach cannot uh, come to the National Football League and bring absolute victory to the Carolinas. Matt Rule, Coach Matt Rule, will be here for the entirety of his contract. Which is what? You know better than me, Mick. Seven years. I think he's coming up on year three of a seven-year deal. Okay. So this is a part of growing the NFL franchise. And one that's had success, but one that's not had back-to-back -back winning seasons. So it's a part of it. It's a part of a transition. It's a part of growth. It's a part of drafting. It's a part of bringing people in, like the misfit like I am that's not supposed to be here because I had three catches and one touchdown as a high school, as a college football player. And the only reason why I'm here is because I went to Temple which has been great because I've been sounding off on Twitter and just tweeting back at people, which I never do, that have been calling me out, which is always fun. And introducing myself and taking the high road and having a blast with it. But to answer your question, I think the whole thing of a college coach can't do it. Well, what does that have to do with anything? Like there's plenty of college coaches coaching in the NFL. Where do you think they started? 
you don't just you're not just born. Uh, Mike Tomlin just wasn't born as the Steelers head coach. Played a million William and Mary, and now 15 years straight, he has not had a losing season. So I think with a new owner, a new head coach, a new team, there's going to be growth. Obviously, we started the year extremely hot and one of the best teams in the NFL, is my opinion. There was points in the season that you lose close to a Dallas team after losing, letting up a bunch of rushing yards and not being as good as we needed to be offensively. And we still should have beat Dallas. We still had the ball down eight, you know, to tie the game and go to overtime with two minutes left. I mean, that's a scenario we practice all the time. Um, the Eagles game was a huge turning point. The Minnesota game was a huge turning point. Eagles game, we were up. They came back and beat us late. We had a punt block and several other things went wrong for us. Uh, myself included, wasn't my best game. And then Minnesota, you go to overtime, and that's a, that's a football team that it's got a lot of good players on it. So I think we are trending in the right direction, Mick. I really do. I think this is a part of the NFL. This is a part of football. It, it, that's that's how I really, really I feel. And I think now more than ever, everybody wants the instant reaction. It's a fire culture instead of a of a higher and build culture. And that's that's the problem, I think, with with where we're at in this sports society today. Well said. Plus, all around us, we got Joe Judge and Brian Flores, and we got other guys being clipped, and it happens so often that they don't get the chance to to try to build it to last. So Man, I appreciate your perspective. I thought that's what you would say. And that's kind of what, what I, and, and you're way much closer to it than me, than I'll ever be. But just from the press box, from the walking around the building, from talking to guys, I mean, I, I, I think he's smart. I think he understands performance, uh, team dynamics, motivation, and, and, and I think he can take us places. Glad to hear you say you think the same way. Yeah, people say, oh, you're biased. You played for him in college. I'll be honest. I didn't like it. I, I pushed against things, you know, not publicly, but, you know, it, when I was in, when I was early on in college, I was like, man, this is a lot. I don't know if I can do this here because I transferred in from U University of Florida. And I was like, well, we went to the Sugar Bowl and this is how we did it. Pretty good year. 13 and one should have been undefeated or 12 and one should have been undefeated. It was the same year that Notre Dame got whooped by Alabama. We were the third, third in the country. And then Teddy Bridgewater and Louisville came into the Sugar Bowl. And killed us. Um, Johnny Miller, a couple other big funny names were on that team. I don't know if Reggie Bonifant was there yet, but uh, I digress. Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm a I'm, I'm a huge fan, huge supporter because I've seen it all different levels. Um, college, seen it from afar, calling radio games. I've seen it from up close and personal, uh, playing for him. You know, at this level. So, yeah. What else you got for me? Last one for Mick. How'd you propose? So I proposed to my, my wife at Congress Hall in Cape May, the place where we got married. Uh, I, we had the wedding date picked out before I proposed. COVID hit. I know, a little weird. COVID hit. And we knew that we wanted to get married. And I was saying, listen, it's on the horizon. We have to call Congress Hall in Cape May, right on the beach, beautiful place to get married, and say, what do you have available? We need a Friday or Saturday in June, because I don't want to get married in July, close to camp. Mm -hmm. I don't want to get married in the spring, too cold. And she was on the same page, right? She wanted to get married in Cape May. Her family's from Houston and all from primarily the South, Louisiana, Florida, um, Texas, Mississippi area. Um, 
Louisiana, I said, but you know, I, I was like, all right, so here's what we're going to do. And boom, picked her up. Said, what's up? Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, just pick, picked her up. And I, and I said, let's take the, we're, we're fortunate enough. We have a little golf cart. We drive around Cape May, New Jersey, where we live. And we said, let's take the golf cart down for some drinks and for happy hour. And let's, you know, let's, we're going to go out to dinner after. So make sure you're, you know, we got nice, we got nice clothes on. We're going to be my parents for dinner after. Let's, let's get out. She had a long work week and walked out to Congress Hall. There was a gentleman there. Uh, just standing over the yard that's right outside of the beach. And I just said, Hey, can you take a picture of us here? We're actually going to be getting married here next year. We were like faking the fact that we were like, we really get, we're getting married. We weren't even engaged yet. And he's like, yeah, no problem. So we took a picture and then I got down on a knee and proposed right there. And the, thankfully the guy was money, just taking pictures, taking pictures all oh, through. Wow. And uh, yeah, so that's how we got engaged and then got married there less than a year later. Where is she there right now? Where you yes. are? Yeah, uh, she's in, she's back home in Cape May, New Jersey. She's she's a beast, working working her ass off and and grinding. And we're about to join a honeymoon and some time off together here in February. Because I was going to say as we wrap up, if she was there milling around behind you, I was going to say let's have a look at her, bring her out here. I want to talk to her for a second. <laughs> we'll do that next time. You're crazy, man. You're the best. Mick, You're Mick, the best, appreciate you, man. This is so much fun. I loved it. Oh my god, we got to get you back on. This is this will be. Um, this is episode one, season one, Mick Mix and Not For Long Media. All right. Appreciate you, brother. Appreciate you, Kyle. Be well, man. My compass is spinning, imagination is winning. Can't get my